0: Good morning. morning. I don't know if I've ever heard so many amens during a bumper video. That's pretty good. (laughs) Hey, welcome, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Community. And uh, I just want to say especially to the Anderson family, the Lindell family, everyone that's come to uh, join today in the the dedication, a special welcome to you. We're honored to have you guys here today. So uh, we're continuing a teaching series this morning called Why Do I Do What I Do? And uh, just by way of review, really quickly, especially uh, since there are guests this morning, uh, in the in the first week, we've been talking about what God's word says about the heart and how it directs all of life. And in the first week, uh, we saw in the scripture uh, that our hearts are the complex core of our being. They're at the center of of this unseen, immaterial part of us. This was from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It'll be on the screen behind me. It says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Everything that we do, Jesus says, springs from the heart. And then the second week, we introduced you to this little picture. Vanna, if I could have my picture real quickly. Uh, this is the fruit to root Picture A simple diagram that illustrates the relationship between what we're feeling, thinking, doing, and how we're reacting to life up at the top of the tree there, and what's going on down in our hearts. Last week, uh, Pastor Pat Stream read to us from Luke chapter 6, for example. Uh, here are verses 43 through 45. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. That makes sense. He goes on, then, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. All this picture is trying to communicate is that when the fruit is bad, emotions, actions, and reactions, when there's something wrong up at the top of the tree, there is something going wrong down at the root. It's a law. Like two plus two makes four. Unbelief down at the root of the tree, and we, we've defined unbelief as an inability to either trust who God is or an inability to believe what he says in his word. Unbelief down at the root of the tree is going to create heartache and confusion and chaos up at the top. Now last week, Pat pointed to the word treasure in Luke chapter 6, the the scripture we just read. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. So uh, it's not just what we trust, feel, or trust, want, and fear, but it's also what we love and worship. Uh, the, the word scripture uses is uh, an idol of the heart. You can find that in Ezekiel chapter 14. So these are two really important foundational words and ideas if you're going to understand what is happening in your heart. Unbelief is an inability or a decision not to believe what God has said. And heart idolatry uh, is, is the worship or love of anything other than God. And we'll use those words interchangeably all throughout this series, but I want you to think of them like two sides of the same door. If you, if you turn away from trusting the word of God to something else, you are going to leave the door open for something else, some other mini-God, some other puny little deity to come in and take up root on the throne of your heart. Uh, You you can't worship nothing, okay? Bob Dylan was right. You've got to serve something or somebody, and if it's not going to be the living God, it will be something or someone else. Your heart, this is why this matters so much, because your heart and the hearts of your children, I'm going to talk a lot about kids today because it's a child dedication Sunday. Your heart and the hearts of your children are incredibly Beautiful and complex things with an unimaginably huge capacity for love and joy and goodness and when we turn away from God and invite other things to rule in our lives it really creates havoc up at the top in our emotions our actions and our reactions let me, let me share a, a quick scenario with you to illustrate why this would matter so much Uh, For example, you are uh, outside the middle school gym, and your 12-year-old daughter is refusing to get out of the car and go into basketball practice because the other kids are mean to her, and she's no good. See, they're right there. (laughs) And everybody's going to make fun of her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have several options there. You can scream her out of the car, right? Don't raise your hand if you've done that, but get out of the car! Or it's going to get really bad in here. You can bribe her. I will buy you ice cream. I'll get you a pony. I'll do whatever you ask me to just get out of the car. You can shame her. Do you want to be a quitter for the rest of your life and everything, blah, blah, blah. Well, you can, doing that may get you the results you want at the top of the tree for a little bit. You may get her out of the car. But all you're doing in that scenario is shifting the focus of her worship from her from what other people think of her to what you think of her or what she thinks of herself, et cetera, et cetera. And the root remains unchanged, but that fear of what other people think or what you think is going to find its way out somewhere else. Whereas if you understand this dynamic of the heart, what you have in the car at that moment is a golden opportunity to point her to the gospel of Jesus and to say, sweetheart, sweetheart, your heart is lying to you right now. Your heart is saying things about you and about God and probably about your teammates that is not true, that has no foundation in reality. And this is not a big deal, okay? Sixth grade basketball is not a big deal. But if we listen to the lies of our hearts today, man, God made you for incredible things. And I want you to know now that you can trust him. And then we get to point her to God. And parents, those of you dedicating kids today, everyone with children here today, I just, I encourage you, this is where all of that Bible reading you've been doing with them since they were little kids, all of the catechizing you've been doing with them since they were little kids, all of the church you've made them sit through since they were little kids, all the songs they sang with the congregation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and so on. This is where all of that comes to bear now. And we get to say to your, to the twelve year old, "What do you know about God?" This, these are these are some of the first words my kids learned. My wife would put them to bed and say, "Tell me what you know about God." God is this. When they were three years old, God is big. God always does what's good. God loves me. He's the King. He's holy. He's always working everything together for my salvation and so on. I, I, I encourage you parents, use the, the New City Catechism or another catechism. First question is, what is our only hope in life and death and at basketball practice and everywhere else? That I'm not my own, but I belong to God. All of those Awana verses you have them memorized, this paralyzing fear of what other people think of her, is your golden opportunity to help her connect all of that with her actual life. And we get to say, this fear of other people, this is just good old fashioned unbelief. And this is why Jesus died, this is so serious. This is why Jesus died and he promises to give you a new heart and a new spirit The point is, you know, how much better is this than yelling at them, bribing them, shaming them? You've made God the center of her life, God the center of basketball. You've helped her understand I'm a worshiper. You've made her aware that, you know, God's word actually does speak to my actual life, and you've invited her to personally trust Jesus in that moment, and she'll get out of the car, (laughs) okay? That's just a bonus. That's why this matters so much. Now, this week, week four, we're turning to, to the question... How do unbelief and idolatry create chaos in my interpersonal relationships? Last week, Pastor Pat said, if you want to get a handle on what you're really worshiping, just follow the chaos in your life. Follow the pain and the chaos, and they will lead you there. Well, there are a few places that that chaos shows up more clearly than in our personal relationships. So uh, let's let's take a look again at the New Testament letter of James, James chapter 4. If you want to turn there with me, we're going to be in uh, James 4, 1 through 10. That's page 1012. If you want to borrow a Bible from one of the chairs in front of you. We're going to read these, these verses and we're going to talk about three reasons that unbelief and idolatry in our hearts create chaos in our relationships with each other, okay? So here's James four. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take a look at verse 1 again. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, some of your translations say desires, your desires are at war within you, you want and do not have, and so you murder. We'll come back to the word murder in a minute. For now, I just want you to notice the principle again. Unmet desires down here, Mean conflict up here. We're going to talk about three reasons that the, that idols of the heart create that chaos. Here's number one. Number one, our idols declare war on everyone around us. If you take a look at verse five. It says that God, the true God, yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. Well, Uh, fake gods are jealous too. Our puny made up gods are petty and they will not share your affection with anyone or anything else. And they're prepared to go to war with anyone that crosses them. Now with kids this is really easy to see because when they fight they tell you why. I want X he wants X. That makes it really easy. So I used to say to my boys I'd say this is the universe, right here. This is the center of the universe. Who is at the center of your universe right now? I am, Dad. Exactly. And you are demanding that everyone around you get into orbit around you and what you want. The problem is that I'm at the center of my universe, too. Boom! And that's why we're doing it. If we could just make God the center of everyone's universe... We would all be in our proper orbit. And they would repent and they would just cry, Oh, Dad, you're so, you're a genius. Thank you, Father. You, we, we just would never sin again and all that. Kids are super easy, okay? Adults are much more subtle, aren't you? And Christian adults in particular are adept at even using Scripture to prop up their little idols. So here's a make-believe scenario. Uh, this happens all the time in Christian households. you got two young kids, you know, fresh out of college. They both love Jesus. They met in Bible college. He's just a total stud. He's a go-getter, ambitious, good-looking. The men want to be him, and the women want to be with him. And and she's just she just loves God. And it's one of those when you're a pastor, he's, oh, I'm so excited to do this. And they're honoring God in their relationship and their engagement and everything else. And they get married, and three years later, They can't even say a civil word to one another anymore. Why? Because more than anything else in the universe, what she wants is a God-honoring, Christ-centered household. And she has a particular vision in her mind of what she means when she says that. You know, it's something her dad, the way her dad led or the way her grandpa led or something like that. But that is what she wants more than anything else in the world. And he has no clue what she's talking about. He didn't grow up. His dad, you know, was kind of spiritually disengaged or whatever. There's not a class in Bible college about how to do that. And he is lost. What he wants, more than anything else in the universe, is to be admired and loved. That's why he's such a great guy. That is what drives him day in and day out. It's what's made him such a great worker. It's what's made him such a great pal. This is—he's—he's he's admired and respected at work. All the other girls at Bible college thought he was hot snot. His wife used to even like him, and now all she can do is complain about him and and what he's not doing, etc., etc., etc. So what does she do? You, this happens all the time. What does she do? Year three or four, someone gives her a book. Or she finds a website or a blog post or something like that where someone tells her what men need more than anything else in the world is respect and admiration. Read Ephesians chapter 5. It's in there. And she thinks, oh, this is it. This is how I'm going to get him to change. I'm just going to respect the crap out of this guy and then he'll do what he needs to do. And she just loves him. I mean she just piles it on and she puts out those ooey gooey social media posts about this guy, this guy, what a great leader, what a great man, etcetera, etcetera. As a pastor, you see those posts and you think, We are eight months from separation at this point, right now. <laughs> Why? Because it will never be enough all the respect and admiration in the universe is not going to be enough to satisfy that man's heart because he was made to find all this in Christ alone what does he do somewhere in year 3 year 4 if he's a slow learner something like that someone some respected older male or maybe a uh, you know he hears a sermon or he comes across a blog post and he becomes aware that she's not lying I'm supposed to be leading spiritually in my family. This is it. I'm just going to lead the crap out of this house. It's just going to be amazing. And then I'll get what I want from her. So he, for, you know, five days, two weeks, four weeks, if he's an overachiever, he makes sure he's reading the Bible out where she can see him. See? <laughs> Loving the Bible. She's, he's inviting her to pray with him. When it's small group night, he's, get the kids back. We're going to small group tonight. He's praying with the kids. He's engaged. Two weeks of that, he is done. There is there is, just, it's never enough. He's never consistent enough. He's never doing it quite right. And after two weeks of that, good luck getting him to read his Bible again. Good luck getting him to engage spiritually again. Because all the leadership in the world is not enough to make that dream come true. After seven years They can barely stand each other. She's at at Lady Small Group saying pray for my husband. I don't even know if he's a Christian. He's out with his friends saying if your wife screamed at you the way she screams at me, you'd not be asking why I play golf so much. Our idols go to war with everyone around us because nothing can fill this need in your heart. All that is needed in our make-believe scenario is, is for them to recognize, oh my goodness, I have been using this person and demanding from him things I was only ever meant to have in the Lord Jesus, and I hate this, I hate what I have done, and I'm sorry. Number two, idols create so much havoc because they hijack, legitimate even godly desires and turn them into ugly demands let me say that again they hijack legitimate desires biblical desires godly desires and they turn them into ugly demands let me ask you this and you need to respond now okay is it wrong to want a godly christ-centered home no thank you is it wrong to be admired and respected especially by your spouse No, absolutely not. Idols hijack these good, godly, biblical desires and turn them into these awful demands. You almost never meet Christians ready to kill each other who can't quote scripture about why they're right. What happens is you you have this good thing, a God-given desire. and And over time, your hand closes around that desire. And it goes from, I would love to have my boss's respect to I will have his respect it goes from I, I would love to have a, a, a spiritual partnership with my spouse to I will have a spiritual partnership with my spouse it goes from I, I would love to be admired to I will be admired and respected especially in my home and then we introduce the language of need we say I need to be admired and respected. I cannot work for a boss who treats me this way. I will not give 100% at work if I'm being treated this way. I will not respond. I will not talk to my mother-in-law if she speaks to me this way. And we we're prepared to do whatever it takes to ensure that those needs are met. And what we develop are these expectations, expectations we never tell anyone about, expectations we never tell anyone about, that that we never share with people, but then we're constantly disappointed and we punish. We punish, I needed this from you, you didn't give it to me, now I punish. I'm cold toward you, I'm distant, I scream at you, I go up to the cabin for weeks at a time just to let you know how angry I am with you. Idols hijack legitimate desires and turn them into these ugly demands. Rather than trusting God to to give us the things that we long for in his own time and in his own way, we say this is not happening fast enough and I am going to make this happen. Number three. the, The third reason that Idols create so much pain in our relationships is that they're rarely seen or acknowledged. I bet when you got married, if you're married, all your friends got together and threw you a big shower. Our guys they took you up to the cabin. You spent the weekend paintballing or something like that. I bet when you got pregnant, you know all your friends got together threw you a big baby shower. They play those games, you know, match up the baby picture with the person at the party and all that kind of stuff, right? How many of you had an idolatry party? Anybody throw you an idol party? Because that's what you really needed. The, the next game, at your next time you have a shower, you need to play a game called, let's try to guess her idol. Let's all, we all know this person, let's see if we can identify the top three things that she secretly desires that are about to run headlong into his secret desires. <gasps> Boom! Let's see who can guess the, the, the secret ways she's going to try to use this baby to create something she really wants in her life. That would be a super fun game, okay? Please try that and let me know how it goes. <laughs> Heart idols create pain because they're below the surface. And if you're not paying attention like Proverbs 4 tells you to, you're going to have all these unspoken rules and expectations and even you won't know why you're so mad. You'll just know I'm not getting what I need from this person and they are in my way. And now I'm going to punish them. This is from a book called When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. This will be on the screen behind me. He says, after I was saved and before I got married, I lived under the mad, undaunted delusion that I was spiritually mature. Mine was a rich and largely imaginary kind of holiness. If ignorance is bliss, I was in permanent ecstasy. The infrequent examinations of my seemingly innocent heart revealed the little need for improvement. And then it happened. I got married and became a blame shifter. John Bettler has said, your spouse always hooks your idol. But marriage didn't simply hook my idols, it hoisted them six feet in the air and told them around the house. I can't tell you how many times I thought, I never had these problems before. This must be my wife's fault. The truth is, I'd always been a blame shifter. It's just after getting married, there were so many more good opportunities to express this fault. (laughs) I would like to amend John Butler's statement, your spouse always hooks your idol to say, uh, your spouse, your family, your work, and your church are the four primary ways that your idols get hooked. My wife Darcy and I, you know, like most couples, we fought in our first couple of years of marriage, but it wasn't bad. Uh, We would still say those were super fun years. But when we became parents, it was ugly. Uh, I went into that experience really believing I am going to be awesome at this. I was going to be the world's greatest dad. I was the 19-year-old when you're in the store and your child is having a meltdown. I'm the 19-year-old that comes along, puts his arm around you and says, you know, honey, a little discipline would go a long way, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I never actually did that. I just thought it and judged you in my heart, (laughs) okay? And then we brought home a colicky baby from the hospital and my world exploded. And I'd always thought I'm a generous-hearted, easygoing person, and I was mad for months and months. This is kind of a famous story in our family, so I can share it with you now, but three months in, uh, to having a baby. We were at the kitchen sink washing dishes together. And Darcy said, Tim, do you like Caleb? I said, no, I, I do not. I do not like this person. He has absolutely ruined my life. Everything in my life that was orderly, good, calm is gone. It's completely good. And I knew, I mean, when you say it out loud, you think, this is really wrong. I mean, this is wicked, this thing that I'm saying right now, but this is really how I feel. I don't like my own kid. And there needed to be repentance and all kinds of hearts, and I really like him now, okay? I really like (laughs) kids in general. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it this, that you have passions you have desires at war within you, you do you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James doesn't leave us there though. He he gives us three things to do to make your heart this this center of unbelief and idolatry and chaos creatingness. He gives us three things to transform your heart into the center of God's powerful, gracious, transforming work. R- remember, your, it's not just that your heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, but it is also the dwelling place of Christ, Ephesians 3. So here are three things uh, that James points to. Number one, you want to change, understand the seriousness of the situation. I'm looking at verse two. He says, you do not have and so you murder. That's an intense word. I think back to the little scenario I painted you with the two Bible school kids. What happens if that goes on four, five, six, seven years? If desires continue to go unrecognized, rules continue to go unspoken, expectations continue to go unmet, she starts to hate the sound of that garage door when he comes home. He starts to long for more opportunities to be out of town for work. They harbor unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment set in. Conflict gets swept under the rug, only to be kicked up again a few weeks later. Hearts get harder and harder. Temptation sets in. Minds begin to wander. Both begin to fantasize, I just wish the other person were gone. Murder. Not only that, verse 2 says we draw away from God. So we draw away from each other, we draw away from God. He says you do not have because you're not asking, you're not praying. When, when, if, we, if we don't really believe what God has said or who he is, of course we're not. Why would we pray? We're going to be turning to other things. And so we, we draw away from God until our idols utterly fail us. When the bottom falls out, the marriage is about ready to explode. He announces he's leaving. Then we begin praying. And we say, God, what are you doing? What is happening? We go to church. We're Christian people. This was never supposed to happen. We tried to do everything right. Or your teenager just goes off the rails. You say, I took this kid to a water for five years, and now you're doing this to me. Verse 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you just want to spend it on your passions. See, if you don't understand how your heart works, you're going to recruit God to your idol project. You're going to be asking, you're going to be saying, God, why will you not help me bow down to my little idol? And he's saying, I, I am not going to do that for you. I'm not going to come in and fix this situation so you can keep worshiping something else. You do not have, you you ask and don't receive because you just want to keep bowing down to your idols. In verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. Strong language again. You adulterous people, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In verse 5, or do you suppose... It's to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he made to dwell in us. You gotta ask yourself, is it really such a big deal that we try to cope with life apart from the grace of God? I mean, is it really such a big deal that that I'm trying to get my needs met over here rather than in God? Adulterous people? It seems like a bit of an overstatement. Let me put it to you this way. What would happen if our imaginary wife discovers that her imaginary husband has been having a really hard time at work and he's turning to ex-girlfriends to try to cope with that issue? She opens his phone one day and finds on Facebook Messenger he's been reaching out to ex-girlfriends, complaining about his boss, asking for prayer. They're texting back, oh, Bobby, I'm so, this sounds so hard. Praying for you. Heart emoji. Kissy face emoji. Is that, is that a big deal? Yeah, you're going to be on that in two seconds. It's a huge deal, and we do it to God all the time, constantly. We are constantly trying to cope with life with ex-girlfriends, old little idols that used to serve us so well. It's a huge deal. Do you suppose it's to no purpose? Scripture says he yearns jealously for your spirit. Isn't that great news, by the way? After all of this, he just longs to have your heart. So, second, first, recognize what we're doing. And second, James says, remember the gospel. What does verse 6 say? Everybody, look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. You need to memorize that today. He gives more grace. Verse 8 says, Draw near to God. And what? Everybody, He will draw near to you. Isn't that awesome? Uh, he means right now. Right now. If you would just turn and draw near to God, He would draw near to you today, before you leave your chair. He gives more grace. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And if you're here today and you're thinking, I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know where to begin with that. This is number three. So recognize what you're doing, remember the gospel. Number three, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. What does it mean to humble yourself? It means to draw near to God. They're the same thing. To draw near to God and to say, I cannot I cannot do what you're asking me to do. I don't even know how to humble myself. Well, you're humbling yourself. <laughs> I cannot keep this up even for a day. I have tried this before, God. I've come to you before. I've confessed my sin. I've confessed my need for you. And I just re- I just keep going back to my old way. I need you. I desperately need you. What are you doing? You're submitting yourself to God. You're resisting the devil, verse 8. What is Nothing pleases the devil more than to see you trying to cope with life on your own. You're resisting the devil, you're washing your hands. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you if you have to do it 50 times a day. Tell him how weak you are. Tell him what you've done. Tell him you need help. Tell him you cannot fix your own heart. Tell him you're going to fall away if he doesn't heal you and help you. Remember Moses from two weeks ago? Pour out your complaint to God. Tell him how you really feel. And what is the promise? He gives more, everybody, grace. He gives more grace. When it says that In verse six, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Some of us have been trying to fix our relationships for 20 years by harassing, controlling, yelling, manipulating. 20 years you've been trying to do this. And you can't figure out why the other person will not change because God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And we have seen at Faith Community Church again and again and again, God can do more in one afternoon if you would just humble yourself than you have managed in 20 years of trying to beat that person up. You want to see God working on, on your behalf? I mean, when we when we pray about our relationships, what are we usually saying? God fix her. <laughs> fix him. End this! If you would just come and say, "I, my heart is desperately sick and I need you, and I'm sorry for what I've done to this person, he would pour out his grace on that situation. And he would provide everything that you need when you need it. What does verse nine mean? Everyone look at verse nine. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is he saying there? Hate your sin. Some of you just heard me say, hate their sin. I said, hate your sin. Loathe what you have done in this relationship. See it for what it really is. We hate so many things in life. We put so much time and energy into hate. People have done to us, there will be no peace, no maturing, and no healing until you see what you've been doing and say, I'm an adulterer. I've been using God. I've been using this other person. I have been driven and driven by this desire in my heart, and I am wreaking havoc on all of my relationships all around me. But when we just seek God because He's God, when we draw near to God just because He's God, He gives more. Grace. And if you have to do it 50 times a day, do it 50 times a day. One more thing before we wrap up today. In all my examples today, and all my stories today, I've I've talked about two people who both have unmet desires, waging war with each other. It is entirely possible, uh, and it and it frequently happens that sometimes you really are just being sinned against. And so the question this morning that I want you to ask simply is this, is have I been seeking the Lord? Have I sought to humble myself before God as much as I know how? Have I been confessing to him my own part in this? Have I been trying to watch my own heart? Have I been uh, trying to be obedient to God in in all the ways that I know how? But the other person just continues to be hard-hearted, to oppress, and to hurt you that's actually another sermon Okay, there's just no time but Jesus has told us what to do in Matthew chapter 18 Matthew chapter 7 and it's it's something that the church actually needs to get involved in if you're actively being oppressed by someone who refuses to humble themselves but for now I'm just saying to you bring yourself before the Lord ask him to show you your own heart and ask him to give you more grace to repent to trust to turn away from unbelief i'm going to invite you to do that right now just give you two minutes on your own if there's if there's any situation in your life a relationship in your life or anything i've been saying right now that you just sense god speaking to you and saying i am talking to you right now would you take a minute right now to say god i wouldn't even know how to humble myself I need your help that much. My heart is desperately sick. Would you come and heal and speak to me? Would you just take time right now and do that? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the cross of Jesus and the promises of your word. We ask for help. God, would you give us grace to know how to draw near? Would you search and know our hearts? And God, would you make this a place where relationships and families in particular experience healing and renewal? Father, we ask that you would stretch out your hand, that you would draw the hearts of fathers to their children and husbands to their wives, that you would overcome unbelief. Father, as your people gather today in Jesus' name under the authority of your word, would you hear our prayer? Would you allow that this year not a single marriage would fail at faith community? But exactly it's opposite. Would you restore even the most hopeless situations? Father, for our kids, since it's a child dedication Sunday, for our children, once again we ask that you would give them the gift of faith. That each one that's been dedicated today would grow up to know and trust and seek you with all their heart put us in the right places at the right times to be a part of that, that not a single one would fall away. You can do anything. And we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, asking that you would pour out grace to accomplish all this and much, much more. In Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Let's stand and sing.